talking about journey, it was, we, the word journey came up a lot when they were talking about grief share. And um, I would encourage you to um, take advantage of, of that ministry. Um, it is a journey. Um, I'm not sure that it's a journey that ever ends. It just has different stages to it. And uh, people need others to walk along on the journey. And one of the cool things about Grief Share is it, is it makes it okay to actually be honest about what the journey's like and to get real help. Uh, a lot of times people are really nervous to bring up anything related to grief. If you lost a loved one, they're really nervous to say anything to you about it. Like they'll, sometimes they'll just ignore it like it didn't happen, even though it did happen and even though you live with it every day. Sometimes they're afraid to bring something up because they're afraid they might remind you of it. There's no chance you're going to remind them of it. They're already thinking about it. And what you're doing is acknowledging um, what they're going through. Um, this isn't part of the Grief Show video, I don't think, but, but it's okay to use the name of the person. Um, and I don't know if I should say this too, but I'll, I'll just say, this is just me talking, so this isn't preaching, this isn't the Word of God. It bugs me when people say, I'm sorry for your loss, because it depersonalizes and says, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, that you lost your loved one. I'm sorry that, you know, David died or that Susie died or that, you know, make it, make it personal, not just, oh, it was a loss, like, I lost some money in the stock market or something like that. So I'm, I'm not beating up on you if that's the way, but I would encourage you to use another mantra than that. I'm sorry for your loss, but to say, you know, praying for you with the loss of this loved one. And, um, and, and I would encourage you, God gave us two ears and one mouth uh, to use it in that proportion. And you'll learn a lot about grief from those that are, are going through it and be an encouragement to them. Well, enough, enough said on that. Life is a journey, and we're following the journey of David. Last time, we looked together at the middle portion of his life when he was hated, hunted, but safe. And uh, years of life on the run. Remember in the first message on David, he's just somewhere between 10 and 15 years old when he's anointed to be king. So he's the age of a lot of the kids that we have here. And it wasn't too long after he was anointed that he actually got to go serve in the court of the king. And it wasn't too long after that that he killed Goliath and suddenly the king doesn't like him anymore because he's jealous of him. And so probably, you know, by age 19, before he's even 20, maybe 20, uh, King Saul wants to kill David and wants to get rid of him. And so from age 20 all the way to age 30, he's running for his life. And, it, and it's kind of like, God, if you hadn't anointed me, I wouldn't be having all this trouble. Uh, God, if you hadn't blessed me with miraculous victories, I wouldn't be having all this trouble. But this was supposed to be part of David's journey. David was being taught by God on um, what he needed to know before he served as a shepherd king uh, of Israel. He's finally crowned king at 30. Saul is dead. David is finally crowned king at 30. Tonight, there are 10 points. (laughs) 
I almost like it's, it's signs and miracles tonight. So we're going to get through uh, in our normal fashion. We should. So let me just, this will give you a flyover of David's life from the book of 2 Samuel primarily. Uh, first in 2 Samuel 1 through 5, you see crowning and consol- consolidation, that is bringing the kingdom uh, together. In chapter 6 of 2 Samuel, Return of the Ark, which was a revival of true religion, we're going to look at a a brief passage in 1 Chronicles 15. In 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant, where God promises that there will be a king that comes from David's line that will reign forever. In in chapters 8 through 10 of 2 Samuel, have necessary wars. his conquering a lot of the people that were around there that were enemies of Israel. And then in 11 and 12, we see David's indulgence and his repentance. From there come lots of family troubles and insurrection where his son Absalom leads a rebellion against him, 2 Samuel 13 all the way to 20, which is really a fulfillment of what Nathan the prophet said would happen because of David's sin. And then in 2 Samuel 21, David sets some past wrongs right. Saul had, um, had attacked, slaughtered the Gibeonites, whom Israel had sworn to protect, and that had to be made right. And then in 2 Samuel 23, we have recorded the last words of David. In 2 Samuel 24, here he is toward the end of his reign, but he conducts a foolish census contrary to God's Uh, will for him, Uh, but we see repentance, we see restoration uh, after a great plague, and then we're going to look at the final blessing that David issues uh, to his son who's going to take the throne after him. All right, so that's the flyover. We're going to draw out some truths along the way that I believe we'll find applicable to our own life journey. So let's talk about these first five chapters of 2 Samuel, uh, crowning and consolidation. Being where God wants you to serve does not mean the battles are over. I don't, I don't know where we get it in our head that if we're doing the right thing and, and uh, God brings us through uh, difficulties and brings us to a certain point along the way and blesses us, that that means the battles are over. Uh, the battles are going to continue. So here's how uh, this went in these first five uh, chapters. First, David mourns for Saul and Jonathan in chapter 1. You know, they, Saul was trying to kill David for a long time, but David and Jonathan were best of friends, hadn't been able to be together for years, and um, it was a great grief for David to see these men killed in battle on, on Mount Gilboa. And and uh, so David's going to mourn for them. He's not, you know, high-fiving everybody that, you know, the witch is dead, the wicked witch is dead, that Saul's dead, the wicked king is dead. He's mourning for what Saul was, um, even though Saul had turned away from the Lord, and he's mourning for Jonathan, who was such a close friend. Well, in chapter 2, David is anointed king of Judah, just the southern part of the kingdom. And Ishbosheth, whose name means man of shame, who is the son of Saul, is anointed king of Israel. And so a civil war begins. It's going to last for some um, almost seven years. Abner is leading Israel's armies. He ends up in chapter 3 joining with David 
after being insulted by Ishbosheth. But then Joab, David's leader of his armies, ends up murdering Abner. And so you've got just a, a royal mess. You couldn't find any soap opera or, or any kind of uh, po- political shenanigans that uh, wouldn't be what you're finding in this real-life journey of David. In, in 2 Samuel 4, Ishbosheth is murdered. The men who murder him think that David's going to congratulate him. David does not congratulate him. David executes them because he was anointed king of Israel. And then finally, in 2 Samuel 5, David is anointed king over all Israel, both uh, the ten tribes, the tribe of Benjamin, and the tribe of Judah. So those first seven years weren't easy years, even though God was fulfilling what he had anointed David to do. One of the most exciting things that happened was that with David, David brought back uh, true religion, the worship of Yahweh. He was a man after God's own heart. And so in 2 Samuel 6, we see the return of the ark, the revival of true religion. However, just because you're sincere doesn't mean you're doing the right thing. And so sincere but disobedient worship can bring great harm. You may recall what happened is they decided to bring the ark uh, back from where it had been, the house where it had been for a number of years, a couple decades. They decided to bring it back on a cart. Well, God had stipulated exactly how the ark was to be carried so that it was treated as holy. And they, they failed to do that. The cart uh, began to tip. Uzzah reached out his hand to, to stop it. And Uzzah was killed on the spot. And David was mad. He was really angry with God because he was trying to do the right thing. And yet we see a repentance and a coming back to obedience to the Lord. In First Chronicles 15, David explains what had gone wrong as he consecrates the Levites, to carry the ark as God had stipulated it was to be carried. He said, you are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, and the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. I think it's a really important principle, even though we don't utilize, obviously, the ark of the covenant and we're not under the Old Testament ceremonial system going to the tabernacle or to the temple. Nonetheless, when God lays down stipulations for how he's to be worshiped, Uh, we need to uh, submit to that. God's not to be treated like... We don't don't try to create a worship experience just of our own fabrication. What we want to do is look to what the Scriptures teach worship should be. That's why we give attention to the Word of God. We see that Old and New Testament. That's why we sing... Uh, sing to God. We sing praise to God. We see that Old and New Testament. That's why we pray to God. We see that Old and New Testament. That's why we give to God. That we see that Old and New Testament. In other words, the components 
of the worship of God, while there can be a lot of variation, there are some basic components that, that reflect the right relationship with God, and we don't want to uh, neglect the Word of God and just worship any way that we please, because ours is a revealed religion. Our God is a God who has revealed what His will is, and we want to follow that will. But it's still an exciting day, the return of the ark. Uh, David's dancing with all his might when it finally comes back. Uh, Michael, his wife, daughter of Saul, is not happy that he was so exuberant in his worship. Um, of course, she didn't apparently even know the Lord, um, but, but David shows the kind of exultant praise that we see in the Psalms, uh, many of which he wrote. The third thing we see in 2 Samuel 7 is the Davidic covenant, and I think the biggest thing we would draw from this is that God's plans are bigger and better than our plans. God's plans are bigger and better than our plans. Second Samuel 7, we read, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. It was called the tabernacle. He says, you know, that doesn't seem right that God's in a tent. So Nathan said, hey, do everything your heart uh, desires on this. It's a good thing. And then God tells Nathan, nope. I don't want Nathan, I don't want David building uh, the, t- the temple. Um, I'm going to have his son build the temple. David's not going to build the temple. Uh, he's a man of war, a man of, of blood. But I am going to, instead of his building a house for me, I'm going to build a house for him. He says in verse 12 of that chapter, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, as he gives this promise, it's not completely clear all the time whether he's talking about just Solomon or he's talking about someone in the distant future. And we find as we continue reading the scriptures that he's primarily talking about the distant future. Luke 1 The angel said to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. That means Yahweh saves. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus is the promised Messiah, the anointed one, the ultimate son of David who rules an everlasting kingdom. And, of course, we see the big story of the Bible going through and coming right through this Davidic covenant, looking forward to Jesus, uh, the king. In 2 Samuel 8 through 10, you see necessary wars. David takes on the Philistines and the Moabites and the Syrians and the Edomites and the Amalekites and the Ammonites and, and other city-states and conquers them. And in the middle of that, in the middle of all this war, you, show him, you see him showing kindness to Mephibosheth, the crippled son of Jonathan. David wants to do something kind for the house of Saul and in particular toward his friend Jonathan, uh, who's, who's now dead, and he brings Mephibosheth, the crippled son of Jonathan, into his household and has him eat at his table. So in the middle of the wars, there's this kindness. 
And then we, we reach kind of the middle of 2 Samuel, and things take a dark turn with indulgence and, thankfully, repentance. The blessings of success can lead to indulgence and sin, bringing long-term harm to ourselves and those around us. And what we're going to see in David's life is a law of sowing and reaping. Um, David did what a lot of the ancient kings would do, and he started to multiply wives to himself. In Deuteronomy 17, 17, God had given instruction regarding the kings, and it said, He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. We remember David's son Solomon, who, who went just way overboard on this, but David did as well. Um, God had instructed further in Deuteronomy 17 that when they have a king and he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. It shall be with him. He shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. The more power a person has, the more responsibility, um, the more they're looked to for leadership, uh, the, the easier it is for them to fall to the lie that because they have great power, because they have great wealth, uh, because they have great authority, they can do whatever they want. And God wanted the children of Israel to know that their kings were accountable to God, and, and the way the kings would keep that on their minds was to be in the Word of God all the time. Deuteronomy 17, really uh, powerful passage. Well, we read, even though David's a man after God's own heart, David isn't paying attention to what Deuteronomy 17 says, because in 2 Samuel 3, we learned that he's already married Ahinoam, Abigail, um, Mekah, Haggith, Abital, and Eglah. Not exactly the names we would use today, but, um, but there's six wives already by 2 Samuel 3. In 2 Samuel 5, verse 13, we learn that David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. Later, we're going to see that, that all these sons and daughters from different wives isn't going to go well in the family. It's, it's really almost impossible not to have a fractured family. Some of you are, are dealing with what we call blended families. Family's been broken, and maybe there's been remarriage, and that it's all been like legit according to what the Scripture would allow, but it's still complicated. It's still difficult uh, when you've got children um, from, from different parents and all of that kind of thing. Multiplying wives was a common practice among the kings of the world at the time. It was a way of showing wealth and power, prestige. It was a way of making political alliances uh, to make peace among nations, but it was not to be so among the people of God because of the tendency to turn our hearts away from the Lord. So, it actually isn't a huge surprise that we read in 2 Samuel 11:1 1, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. 
And there's at least the suggestion that because this is the time the kings go forth to war, that David had kind of sunk back into an indulgent way of living. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. And so when the temptation is delivered to him, he falls to it. He ended up stealing Bathsheba, wife of Uriah, who was one of his mighty men in his army. And then he arranged for Uriah to be stranded in battle so that he would be killed in order to cover up for Bathsheba's pregnancy. We read in 2 Samuel 11, verse 27, the last verse of that chapter, and when the morning was over, not, not, that's morning, like grief was over, there's a season of mourning that they would characteristically do. David sent and brought her, that is Bathsheba, to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You know, you can, you can ignore what God says. You can go your own way. You can indulge yourself. You can use the gifts that God has given to you in, in a way that you know is contrary to what God commands. But nobody's getting away with anything. God takes note, and, and there's going to be consequence to it. And so, Nathan the prophet comes and tells David, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me, speaking of the Lord, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And really that sets the stage for the rest of the book of 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel 12, 11, 13, and 14, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Now we have on record Psalm 51, one of the great psalms of penitence before the Lord. Um, and you see that the depth of David's agony before the Lord for his sin against God. But you see even right from the beginning that when we sin against God, we, we, don't, we do damage not just to ourselves, but to those that are affected by our sin. And our children are some of the first to, to pay the price. But in God's kindness, the very next son that Bathsheba bore to David was named Solomon whose name means peace, shalom. And they nicknamed him Jedidiah, beloved of the Lord. He was born to David through Bathsheba. And so it's like God was saying, you know, you've done this terrible sin. There's great consequence for it. You've repented, though, and I'm going to honor that repentance. And I love you still, and I'm going to bless you still. Well, we see in 2 Samuel 13 to 20 all kinds of family troubles and insurrection. And it kind of goes like this. Ammon, one of David's sons, violates Tamar, one of David's daughters. Absalom sees that nothing is done to Ammon, so he kills Ammon. Absalom is then estranged from David. He's afraid David is going to go after him because he killed his brother Ammon. And then Absalom um, finally comes back into Israel. He ends up leading an insurrection against David. And then Absalom is killed 
by Joab, and David is restored to the throne. That's a very brief chronicle of a very painful, long time of suffering that actually goes all the way back to David starting to practice polygamy, not just to Bathsheba. And so I want to encourage you, you know, we have, we have just all kinds of families in our church. God has blessed us with so many young families. You're, you're early on your journey. A lot of the kids, you know, they're munchkin size right now, okay? Do right before the Lord. That doesn't mean that everything's going to go smoothly. We've seen that. David was anointed king, and there's all kinds of troubles anyway. But, but don't make for yourself unnecessary trouble by doing things you know that the Lord says is wrong. Guard your heart. Keep your heart open to the Lord. Do what's right to your spouse, with your kids, and let the Lord bless you for that rather than bringing on yourself and on your family great sorrow. And it it doesn't matter how smart you are or how much prestige you have or what position you have. When, When you do wrong, particularly in some of these categories, there's no way it's not gonna do just incredible damage. Don't do it. And if, and if you've begun going down that route, today is a great day to stop it and turn around and do right and let God restore you. Well, in 2 Samuel 21, number 7, we see David setting past wrongs right. Saul slaughtered the Gibeonites, uh, whom under Joshua, Israel had, had vowed, made a covenant with to protect them. And, um, and, and there was a necessary retribution for that. 1 Samuel 22 is actually Psalm 18. So you have a psalm set in there in 1 Samuel 22. And then 2, uh, I said 1 Samuel 22, 2 Samuel 22. And then 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 through 7, David's last words talk about the blessings of a righteous king. You know, David becomes the standard for all the kings that follow him. They're all measured according to David, whether they're like David or not like David. But, but we know from reading David's story that David was far from perfect. He made many mistakes. He committed sins. And, and Scripture is honest with us about David's life. And there's some encouragement factor to that. You may have made some really major missteps, you have, you've maybe gotten tangled up in some kind of really harmful sin. It doesn't mean the story's over for you. It doesn't mean things can't turn around. It doesn't mean God won't receive you. And it doesn't mean your life can't be a blessing for generations to come. You know, the Scripture makes it clear that we're a broken people in a broken world. There's actually only one king that can fix it who's absolutely perfect. Listen to David's words when he talks about the kingdom, a righteous kingdom. These are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. That's why his writings, the Psalms are included in the scripture. They're Holy Spirit given. 
The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, and they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and shafts of a spear, they're utterly consumed with fire. A righteous kingdom is a kingdom that deals with evildoers, but a righteous kingdom is a kingdom that brings great blessing, like the morning sun shining on right after rain on, on a green field. Second Samuel 24, you know, we're thinking, David, surely you're done doing stupid things, but then he conducts the census that the Lord had forbidden, and it causes great harm, but we see repentance and restoration. But what's interesting is the way the, the Lord introduces it. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go throughout all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, that's the north to the south, and number the people that I may know the number of the people. Joab pushed back, but David said, do it anyway, um, even though it's, it's wrong. Now, what's striking here is that it says that the Lord incited him. He said, well wait, well, well, wait a minute. The Lord incited them. How come David's to blame? You'll notice that the anger of the Lord, 2 Samuel 24, 1 says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David. In other words, David's foolish move was still under the sovereign hand of God to bring about a judgment on Israel for sin that was there. You know, sometimes we get really angry about foolish things that leaders do, political leaders. Have you ever thought about the fact that sometimes you say, how could anybody be that dumb? Well, probably nobody could be that dumb. <laughs> Except that God is ruling. He sets up kings and puts them down. He brings up nations and puts them down. And he deals with nations sometimes by having leaders do foolish things things. And so don't despair when leaders do foolish things, because God is working it more than just, you know, leading that leader. He's also dealing with people that may need judgment. Well, David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And we learn that God gives him a choice of what of what kind of punishment that they will have to endure. And David chose three days of pestilence. He said, let me fall into the hands of the Lord, not my enemy. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from morning until the appointed time. There died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand against toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity, said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. And there David ended up building an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings 
So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. Um, I guess the only comment I would make, I mean, we've recently gone through a time of plague of sorts, right? Just remember that it's not all about the plague. That, that God is doing things, even in these hard things, even, even in things that bring the death of people, God is doing things in the world. He is doing things with a nation that need to be done and that point us to him and the fact that we're answerable to him. He holds our life breath in his hands. He can do whatever he pleases. And then look at the final blessing in second, well, don't, you can't look at it because you don't have it up there, but um, unless you have your Bibles with you, Second, First Chronicles uh, 29, 10 through 19. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Now, they had just taken an offering up uh, for the temple that Solomon would build. So he says, but who am I? What is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners. We are on a journey, as all our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow, and there's no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for the building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things, and now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, referring to the journey, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. Of course, we're going to learn that Solomon ends up building the temple uh, for the Lord. Uh, Solomon has great wisdom and great wealth, but ultimately, it's going to point to a greater than Solomon, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David. What do we say about this, this whole journey? I think we can draw this conclusion your life's journey is part of a much bigger story. And the hero of that story is Jesus. And if you can keep that in mind, I think it'll help you deal with all the ups and downs. And I think David's life is really helpful to us because, you know, here's David, the man after God's own heart, but look at all the difficulties. Look at all the mistakes. You know, if God can bless David, God can bless you. If God brings David to account, God will bring you to account. But ultimately, the value of your story is the connection it has with the big story of the gospel. And the hero of that gospel is Jesus. I thought, I'm going to pray here, and I thought it would be fitting for us to sing 
in closing 10,000 reasons. David was known as a sweet singer of Israel, sweet psalmist, and known for his singing praise to the Lord. And I thought as we think about our journey from beginning to end, it'd be good to praise the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, heroes of the faith. And ultimately, Lord, we thank you for the great hero of our faith, the captain of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may we learn from David, uh, both from the bad things and the good things. And may we walk with you all our days. May we, Father, find your purpose for our lives and walk our, walk our journey following the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we